Well, we've come to the time of the sermon, so let's pray that it was worth the wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your word and for not leaving us in the dark, but um, giving, you us, giving us your word that it might be a lamp to our feet and giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who is to us a son to, to light our, our way. We pray that you would give us grace to follow him, to follow in his way. We pray that you would lead us by your spirit and make our desires the same as yours. Make our instincts the same as yours, our will the same as yours. For it is not naturally for us, but only by your grace. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. During this Advent season, we've uh, been spending our time together in the, in the prophecy of Malachi, where God and his people engaged in, in several spirited conversations. Right? Malachi recorded these disputes, and then there was silence. He was the last of the prophets, and so his, his words hung in the air between the two testaments for the saints to consider as they waited for Christ to come. Well, Christ did come, but he is gone again, and now we find ourselves waiting for him to come a second time. And in this in-between, though, Malachi's words still hang out there for our consideration. So we're returning to these words with the hope that they'll help us prepare for the second advent of Christ, just as they help the saints prepare for his first. This morning we come to chapter 3, verse 13, where God again lays a charge against his people, and the people respond in ignorance. God says in, in, in verse 13, you have spoken harsh words against me, and the people reply in a fashion you have by now come to expect, how have we spoken against you? They knowingly ask. And so God lays out his complaint for them. It's a complaint that could just as easily be lodged against me or against you. The harsh words that God's referring to are found in verse 14, where the people declare it's vain to serve God. What do we profit by keeping his commands or by going about as mourners before the Lord of hosts? This is the offense, the, the content that gave rise to God's charge of, of harshness. The thrust of the charge is that the people viewed their relationship with God as instrumental. They wanted to know what personal benefit, what profit they could expect in this life from living according to God's commandments. Now, God commands holiness, which requires sacrifice requires self-denial and forgiveness and loving your enemy. The, the life God calls people to live is not easy or natural to us. All right, this is one of my problems with something like the four spiritual laws. If you haven't heard of them, the, the four spiritual laws are intended to be this brief yet memorable way of presenting the gospel to people. And the first spiritual law is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Right? And it's not that this is false. It's actually true, but it's terribly misleading. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But that wonderful plan consists in repentance, submission, and faith. 
No one who ever heard that God loves them has a wonderful plan for their lives ever imagined that the Christian life would include suffering. And the second they experience it, they begin to ask the very question God describes as harsh in our passage this morning. What do we profit by keeping God's command or by going about as mourners before the Lord of hosts? Where is this wonderful plan I was promised? Indeed, mourning is surely how the Christian life appears to some. The use of of mourning to describe the Christian life is probably intended as a, a slight here. The spiritual disciplines that that Christians have engaged in for millennia include fasting and simplicity and solitude. Christians go away to be alone and refuse both food and comforts. It appears they're in mourning. And so many people become disillusioned to discover that that's what they signed up for. But of course, it's not mourning. Christians have always denied themselves in order to gain something much more valuable a greater awareness of their human fragility and dependence, a clear sense of God's presence, and a deeper satisfaction in Christ than anything in this world can offer. But none of those great benefits are counted as happiness or prosperity in the world's estimation. Therefore, many a person has struck out to to follow Christ, but abandoned the effort when the prophets did not match the desires formed in them and shaped by the world. Here, G.K. Chesterton's observation rings true. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That was the conclusion of the people in Malachi. The Christian ideal was found difficult and abandoned, left untried. The people looked up from their struggle with sin, and what they saw were people, arrogant people, who were happy. They saw what they called evildoers, right? People who disregarded the commands and designs of God, who were prospering nonetheless. And it's the same sort of observation made in Psalm 73, where the psalmist admits that the prosperity of the arrogant and the self-righteous almost caused him to abandon the life of faith altogether. My feet had almost stumbled, he confesses. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain. They are sleek and sound. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not plagued like other people. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They set their mouths against heaven, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High God? Such are the wicked, always at ease, yet they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and am punished every morning. So the thought occurs to the psalmist, just as it occurred to the people in Malachi, and perhaps it's occurred to you as well. What's the point? What profit do we gain from all this sacrifice and self-denial, from picking up our cross, following Jesus? It's a harsh question, but God graciously still answers it. And first he informs us that the the profit of our, our persistent devotion and obedience to God in this life won't be physically evident until the day he acts. God will provide his children with what they need, but he's concerned not with our prosperity in this life, but with our endurance and faith, regardless of the circumstances that define our experience of this world. He wants to find us in Christ, 
on the day he acts. And this phrase, on the day I act, is an allusion to the the day that God will come to judge the world in equity and righteousness. It's a day vividly depicted in the last few verses of our passage this morning. The arrogant and evildoers will be burned up like stubble on that day. But those who revere God's name will be so joyful, they'll go out leaping like calves from the stall. In verse 18, we're told on that day that the difference between the righteous and the wicked will become evident. The profit of all our efforts in holiness will be revealed because in verse 17, we're told that on the day of judgment, those who revere God and obey his commands will be spared. I'll spare them, God says, as parents spare their children who serve them. They'll be mine. They'll be my special possession. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous, therefore, consists in grace. That's the profit for which the righteous humbly and patiently wait in this life. When God comes to judge the world, those who revere him will be spared his judgment and instead find healing. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and the righteous will go leaping like calves from the stall because they've not only been spared, but healed from all their infirmities and flaws as well. They will, as Sandy Van Thiel often so joyfully declares, be set free to be truly themselves, no longer afflicted by sin. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous, therefore, is not in guilt. The righteous require healing. And God talks about sparing those who revere his name in the day of judgment. And perhaps this is stating the obvious, but the innocent need no sparing. It's only the guilty who must be spared. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous, therefore, consists not in guilt, but in grace. It's a a grace made possible only because of the first advent of Jesus Christ. The expectation, you know, in the Old Testament was for God to come at the end of time in judgment. But when the Son of God came to earth almost 2,000 years ago, he came in the middle of the story, and he came in grace. Jesus came to extend grace to the guilty by being obedient for them. And he came to spare the guilty by dying in their place. I I don't know whether Jesus asked himself or the Father during his advent on earth what profit there was to this life he was living. What's the point? But if he did ask it, if he did wonder, what is the profit? What's the point of all this? The answer was you. That's the answer. You are his reward. Jesus was winning a guilty people for himself who apart from him would be burned like stubble on the day of judgment, right? Jesus will come to earth a second time. It's what we wait for now. And when he comes again, he will come in judgment and it will be at the end of time. But for those who love him and faithfully entrust themselves to him, then their judgment, your judgment has already occurred. It occurred on the cross over 2000 years ago. The second coming of Jesus Christ will be when the profit of this difficult life of faith will be made evident and when Jesus too will collect his reward. For he will come to earth in order to live with his pardoned people forever. And what awaits those who revere and obey God in this life is a life to come 
that's defined only by love and peace, rest and unity, wholeness and health. It's paradise restored. It's a new creation and it will be glorious. But one question remains for us to answer. It's a familiar question. And the familiarity of it illustrates our persistent pursuit of an excuse from this life of faith. The question is again, what's the point? This time we're not posing the question as those who are observing the ease of the wicked, but those who are staring at the grace of Christ. Right? If he was obedient for us, truly did absorb our judgment into himself so that at the end of time we're promised grace, then what's the point of our obedience and reverence in the meantime? If our judgment has already occurred in Christ, then what's the point of our ongoing obedience? Well, there are two reasons for our obedience. The first is that our reverence and obedience are the means by which we express our gratitude. It's our way of saying, thank you. We demonstrate an understanding and appreciation of the gospel by following in the footsteps of Christ. Right? The person who's unwilling to live as Christ requires of his followers proves their misunderstanding, their ingratitude for the gospel of grace. Right? And the second is that through our reverence and obedience, we are keeping ourselves in a position of grace as we wait for Christ to come again. Reverence and obedience inherently acknowledge that there's someone above you, someone more important than you, who's worthy of your affection and attention. It's humanity's sinful desire, sinful impulse to deny this fact, right? We don't wanna to submit to anything. We don't want any limitations or restrictions. We want to determine our own morality. We want to piecemeal our own religions together according to what works for us. And the problem is that we're not created to carry such a burden. The responsibility of being God absolutely crushes a person, creates an inconsistency that you can't hold together. And a society in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes cannot hold together either. Submission, reverence, obedience, these are necessary behaviors for human beings. And the benefit of them, the profit, if you will, is that they position us to receive the grace of Jesus Christ with joy when he comes again. They remind us daily of our need of him so that we can cheer his coming to us a second time. When he comes again, he'll deal with us in grace and make us new in all our parts. Submission, Sacrifice and obedience will no longer be difficult for us, but naturally flow. And for the first time in our lives, we'll be content with our position as creatures, with our limitations. We'll finally rest from all our striving and both Jesus and we will get what we wanted all along, which is each other. Therefore, let me end with this encouragement and charge from the letter to the Galatians. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing good and doing what is right. For we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. 
So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.